Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Acts chapter one, or you can open up that Bible app and find Acts chapter one is where we're gonna be this morning. Acts chapter one, verses six through 11. Acts chapter one, verses six through 11. I wanna talk to you this morning about helping others marvel at Christ. Helping others marvel at Christ. One of the best ways that you can grow your own faith is to help someone else grow theirs. One of the best things you can do for your own faith is to help someone else grow theirs. When it comes to following Jesus, one of the best things you can do to throw fuel on the fire of your own faith is to help somebody else grow theirs. It may be by uh, leading a Bible study with some friends or uh, for the church. It may be a parent teaching their kids through a catechism or uh, how to reach out to their neighbors. It may be mentoring someone else, similar to what we do with our adopt Captain program where CNU students can get adopted by local families and local people who just want to cheer them on and encourage them in life. Some of my favorite memories from the uh, history of Catalyst Church is through our Adopted Captain program where uh, we would connect students and local families and those local families would walk with them uh, uh, through, through their college years. And uh, it was only after the fact often that I would find out about these relationships and how God had used them. I, I remember hearing the, uh, the story of one young couple who was at CNU and they got engaged and they were uh, walking through some tumultuous times. And uh, Sandy, one of our members here at Catalyst Church, just happened right to sit behind them uh, for a number of Sunday mornings. And so one Sunday morning, the young lady leaned over and just asked Sandy a question. And I, I don't even know what Sandy said, but whatever words she offered to her helped that young woman in such a way that they invited Sandy to come to their wedding and celebrate with them. Uh, by the way, that young couple is now attending our church plant in Williamsburg, uh, Virginia, which we, which we planted neat, kind of full circle. But one of the best ways you can, you can grow your own faith is by helping someone else grow theirs. Again, it may be a, a, a regular Bible study. It may be a kind word in a pew one Sunday morning. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Chuck Lawless, began a daily blog in which he teaches through what he's learning in his quiet times. One of the best ways that you can grow your own faith is by helping somebody else grow theirs. So this morning, I wanna to talk to you about helping others marvel at Christ, believing that the gospel can get through you to another person. Catalyst Church exists to be a healthy church within walking distance of CNU that helps people everywhere marvel at Christ in all of life. That's our mission statement. That's what we're all about. We want to be a healthy church within walking distance of CNU that helps people everywhere marvel at Christ in all of life. That's what we find at Catalyst Church. That's, I think, what we find in the book of Acts. So let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. The Bible says, so when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will, it you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
So as we turn our attention to God's word, I want you to see three steps for helping others marvel at Christ. Three steps that you can uh, take to help others marvel at Christ in all of life. Number one, hear the rebuke of inaction. Hear the rebuke of inaction. The disciples are left staring at the sky. Now, on the one hand, it's understandable why they would have just stood there and stared. We would have likely done the same thing. I imagine that we would have done that as well. But on the other hand, we learn from these two men who we figure out our angels because of how they're dressed, that just because it is that way doesn't mean it ought to be that way. We can understand that the disciples were standing there staring, but the, the angels make it clear that they weren't supposed to be simply standing there staring. They are rebuked for their inaction. We are not unlike the disciples here. It's good for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's bad for us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to be afraid to blink as though we might, uh, if we blinked, we would lose him. It's like watching a sunset, right? You strain to keep your eyes open. I think of the sunsets when you go down to the Outer Banks and you go to the sound side and you watch the sunset over the sound and you've got to keep your eyes open as wide as you can because you know once that sun sets, there's nothing you can do to bring it back. You are meant to fix your eyes on Jesus with a gaze that makes everything else seem to fade away and with a gaze that puts everything else into its proper perspective. Our focus is not supposed to be on Jesus in such a way that we don't see anything else, but so that we see everything else rightly in light of who Jesus is and his claim on our lives. Perhaps you've heard the phrase that people can be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. They're so focused on Jesus that they don't pay their bills, right? That's not what we're talking about here. You ask them for some biblical help on parenting and they begin to tell you the etymology for the Greek word for anger, which just makes you more angry, right? What we're talking about here is not that. We're talking about our theology becoming biography, having a focus on Christ that leads us to love others and love the world. I would argue that unless your theology does, in fact, become biography, it's at best bad theology, Good theology, that is right thinking about God, leads to good doxology, that is the right worship of God, which leads to good ethics, which is living before God. Whether standing on the mountain, gazing at the sky, waiting for Jesus to return, or slouched back into our couch, waiting, watching another episode, yes, Netflix, I'm still here, we can become, if we're not careful, inactive in our faith. Let me apply what I'm talking about. Consider your workplace. Your gaze upon Christ is supposed to both free you from the soul-sucking worry that can come from your work, and, and it's supposed to be the lens through which you see your work. So on the one hand, Christian, you should be so settled in Christ. He is your only hope in life and death that when you feel the fury of your boss, you're not completely undone because your life is not uh, in, in, in your boss's approval, right? That, that would make a really bad song, by the way. What is our only hope in life and death? That my boss might be happy. It just doesn't ring the same way, right? No, that's not our hope in life and death. Christ is our hope in life and death. So on the one hand, your hope in life and in death is supposed to be Christ. You're so fixed on Christ that you're not undone by your boss's anger. 
And on the same time, that doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean that you give no thought to it. It fuels how you think about those things. We might think the same thing about parenting, right? We are meant to have our minds and our hearts fixed on Christ in the midst of parenting. That doesn't mean we ignore our responsibilities as parents, but rather our gaze being fixed on Christ shapes how we parent and play and do homework and run the 10 billion errands. But what we find in our text is that the disciples were literally just standing there. It's like the parents sitting on the couch, holding their Bible, reading their Bible while the kids are burning the house down. By all means, read your Bible, but don't let the kids burn the house down, right? They were just standing there. There are at least two reasons the disciples were wrong in standing there. Number one, they weren't gonna bring Jesus back by just staring, right? It's like the dog staring at the door after her owner leaves. If I just stare hard enough, he'll come back and feed me. Right? No, they were wrong in that. Number two, they had work to do. John Stott explains there was something fundamentally inconsistent about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. Christ will come personally, visibly, gloriously. Of that we have been assured. Other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. So, men of Galilee, people of Catalyst, why do you stand looking into heaven? Hear the rebuke. These angels speak to you. Why? Do you not know that you have work to do? Do you not know that you have been, been given power to fulfill the work? Do you not know that you live in a dying world desperate for the work? The work? Do you, do you, why do you stand looking into heaven? The Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment. In Romans chapter 10, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, to which every Christian would say amen and amen. Great. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 5,000 plus CNU students, 500 students at the elementary school across the street, 2,200 homes within a one mile radius of uh, where we're at right now, where you're sitting right now. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. But then the question is, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to just let out an echo, an empty amen, or are we going to do something with that? Paul says, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Your whole life, your employment, your position as a student, your digital footprint, your family, how you use your home, how you tweet or don't tweet is meant to be a witness to Christ. Don't just stand there, do something. But I wanna be careful, right? We need to be careful that as we hear the rebuke of inaction, we may be tempted to think that the proper response is any action. There's a danger there as well. The angels were not saying, don't just stand there, do something. In fact, do anything. It really doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't stand still. They were saying, don't just stand there, do what you've been commanded to do. There's a tension here that I think we need to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. Let's, let's, let me give you an example. Evangelism. I would say I'm not very good at evangelism. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not very obedient to the work of evangelism. 
And I'll look at sometimes at other people and other churches who are doing the work of evangelism, and I can find my heart starting to grow critical and say, mm, I don't think I'd do it that way. Mm, I think that sends mixed messages. Mm, I don't, mm, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have done it that way. I don't, I, and, and I, who, uh, while being disobedient to the command of evangelism, can become very critical of others who are being obedient to the work of evangelism. In his helpful little book on evangelism, which is the book we're going to be studying in February, J. Max Stiles writes this. He says, I, for one, will take people practicing evangelism as best they can over those who forego evangelism until they have the perfect practice. I've learned to preach to my inner critic when I see somebody doing something that I'm not doing, but I want to criticize them anyway. I like their way of doing it better than my way of not doing it. I like their way of doing it better than my way of not doing it. So men of Galilee, why are you standing there? People of Catalyst, why are you standing there? It may not be evangelism for you. It may be some other area of Christian maturity and growth in which the Lord is saying to you, come on, man, let's get going. So when we say we exist to be a healthy church, which uh, in, in walking distance of seeing you that helps people everywhere marvel at Christ in all of life, we don't just say that we want you to marvel at Christ in all of life. We want you to help others marvel at Christ. Help people everywhere marvel at Christ in all of life. If we're not equipping you to help others marvel at Christ, we're failing our mission. If we're not inspiring you to help others marvel at Christ, we're failing at our mission. If we're not strategically mobilizing you to help your neighbors marvel at Christ in all of life, we're failing at our mission. Let us hear the rebuke of inaction. But secondly, let us believe the promise of Jesus' return. The angels not only offer a rebuke, but a reorienting promise. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, there's disagreement as to what exactly it means that he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It doesn't mean that if they stood there long enough, it was going to happen in reverse, uh, there used to be these things called VHS tapes. Um, some of us will remember. You would put them into this machine called a VCR. Um, it was fascinating. Um, and you had to be kind and rewind if you rented from this place called Blockbuster, which nobody's ever heard of. But um, uh, it, it, we, we tend to think of this like a VHS tape where you, if you press rewind, you could actually see the scene happening in reverse. Now you press rewind and it just skips blocks at the bottom of your screen. But you used to kind of see it happen in reverse. That's, that's not what this means, as though the disciples were going to just hit the rewind button and watch it happen in reverse. When it comes to the issue of how Jesus will return, we are rather limited in our resources. There are three descriptions which seem to rise to the surface throughout Scripture. His return will be personal, it will be glorious, and it will be powerful. His return will be personal. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come. It's not another Jesus. It's not just a spirit it is this Jesus, the same Jesus, which we have seen at work in the Gospels, whom we saw crucified for our sins. His return will be glorious. Much of Christ's earthly ministry happened, it occurred in obscurity. He was born in a small, unheard of town. He ministered to the overlooked and the marginalized. He was crucified among common criminals. Even his ascension was not a public display that went viral, but was limited to a few of his followers. 
But when he returns, it will be seen by all. And he won't need digital or social media to be seen. Jesus himself taught his disciples, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. His return will be personal, it will be glorious, and it will be powerful. So these angels said to the disciples, and I believe they say to you, this Jesus will return again. You can bank your life on it. So, so does your life reflect the certainty of Jesus's return? Or does your life reflect a dismissiveness towards whether or not he will ever return? Does your life reflect the certainty of Jesus's return? Or does your life reflect a dismissiveness towards whether or not he will ever return. The Apostle Paul brings us to the forefront in Titus chapter two. He writes, for the grace of God has appeared. Where? Where's the grace of God appeared? In the person of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says, confident of the Lord's return and waiting for the Lord's return, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We remember that we have been redeemed from all lawlessness through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been purified for himself as a people for his own possession, and we are zealous for good works. While I don't know exactly how he will return, I do know how I am to live until he returns. So does your life reflect the certainty of Jesus' return or does your life reflect a dismissiveness towards whether or not he will ever return? Are you spending your life in such a way that you will not be ashamed on the day of Jesus' return? Are you spending your life in such a way are you planning your semester in such a way that if Jesus were to come back, you would not be ashamed? Friends, believe in the promise of Jesus's return. So order and reorient your lives that if Christ were to come back at the end of today, you would not be ashamed. When it comes to the issue of whether he will return, we are left without doubt. He will return. You will see it. Hear the angels prompting. Orient your life on the return of Christ. And thirdly and finally, repent and move forward in faith. So we've heard the rebuke of inaction. We've heard the call to orient our lives, to believe on the promise of Jesus' return. And now we repent and walk forward in faith. The rest of Acts chapter one tells us how the disciples chose Matthias to replace Judas. This chapter raises two topics that, Lord willing, we'll consider in the weeks to come, but not this morning. Just tell you what they are. First, they chose a 12th, uh, a 12th apostle in order to replace Judas. You might think, well, why didn't they just leave it at 11? Well, because they wanted to reflect the fullness of Israel. It raises the question, what is God's purpose for Israel, and what does it matter to Christians? Lord willing, we'll wrestle with that in a couple weeks, not this morning. 
The second topic which the chapter raises is how to make decisions. At the end of this chapter, we see the apostles cast lots to make the final decision. It comes down to Matthias and one other guy, and they, they, one other guy, they cast lots. Well, is that how we should make decisions today? Because some of us are trying to wrestle with which major to choose, right? Maybe we should get some dice out or whether or not to buy this house or that house or take this job or that job. How do we make decisions in the Christian life? Again, we'll wrestle with this in a few weeks, Lord willing. But this morning, as we consider our final point, I want you to simply see the fact that there is a verse 12. There is a verse 12, and there are verses after verse 12 in Acts chapter 1. And there are chapters after Acts chapter 1. It doesn't stop with verse 11. It doesn't end with the rebuke. Same way, Christian, for you. It will not end with a rebuke, but with a resurrection. The angels rebuked them. Men of Israel, why are you standing there? It was not an emotionless question. It was a question of correction. And any of us who have been corrected in a public setting, which some of us have, maybe it happened at work, maybe it happened at the family Thanksgiving table, I don't know, it could happen a billion places, right? We've been corrected. We felt what they felt. They probably felt a ping of shame. Men of Israel, why are you standing there? And all of a sudden, their head dropped. And they started to come up with excuses. What had happened was, right? But they didn't let that shame stop them from participating in all that God had in store. The rest of the book of Acts flows from their willingness and their ability to believe that God's grace was sufficient for them and their failures, As Luke records uh, this event at the end of his gospel, Luke records the ascension of Jesus at the end of his gospel and then at the beginning of the book of Acts. He puts it this way. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The joy that they expressed there was on the other side of repentance and obedience at the angel's rebuke. That joy and the rest of the book of Acts flows from how they responded to the angel's rebuke. Those 11 disciples witnessed the ascension. They gazed into the sky and then they heard the angel's rebuke. Praise God that they responded with repentance, with new obedience and the joy that flowed. Think about it. The sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, his mission-shifting vision of including the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, his leadership in the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, all could have been erased if he had heard the angels rebuke and thought, you know what, I'll never be good enough. I ought to just quit the Christian life now. And if anyone had a reason to quit the Christian life, it would have been Peter, right? I mean, he denied Jesus. If anyone could have said, yeah, you're right. I'll never be good enough. I ought to just give up now. It would have been Peter, but he didn't. He heard the angels rebuke. He believed the promise of Jesus' return. He applied the gospel to himself. He repented and he moved forward in faith. Or John, who authored the gospel attributed to his name in three letters, which are in scripture, who recorded the book of Revelation. He likely went on to be the bishop of Ephesus. All of that undone if he had decided to wallow in his shame instead of repenting and moving forward in faith. 
We could go on to consider James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, who would have been a a political radical in his day. And Judas the son of James. Christian history traces its roots back to that moment in which they believed that God could use struggling, bumbling ragamuffins like them to make the good news of Jesus Christ known. So what about you? Do you believe that? Or are you tempted to think, man, I can't help others marvel at Christ because dot, 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 fill in the blank. We've all got our reasons. Or do you believe that the gospel is good enough, that God is actually powerful enough to use even you? When God convicts you of sin, he is calling you to repentance and new obedience. That's the difference between the conviction that the Lord gives and the condemnation which the devil hurls. The Lord calls us to repentance unto life. The devil hurls accusations which push us further into spiritual death. And it very well may be that there is something preventing you from fully participating in the mission of God. A sin which the Lord is convicting of you rightly or a misplaced guilt that the devil is accusing you of wrongly. Friends, repent and believe the gospel and move forward in faith. What God has in store for you is better than anything you could imagine. Move forward in faith. So will you help others marvel at Christ in all of life? Will you say to God, God, if you can, use me. Join the Bible study. Reach out to the friend. The good news that Christ died for our sins, the good news of the gospel is yours to proclaim and yours to enjoy. James said it in no uncertain terms. Faith without works is dead. And what is the most important work of faith but to help someone else grow in their faith? The most telling evidence of being a disciple is making disciples. The best way for you to grow in your faith is to help someone else grow in theirs. I wonder sometimes as I look at this principle of the the, the New Testament and the Lord using just unlikely people to reach unlikely people to reach unlikely people, it seems to be his way of doing things. But I wonder sometimes, does anyone have the gospel courage to look at people in their worst moments and think God has a plan? He's not done with you yet. And I'm going to walk with you until I see it in full. I'm going to help you marvel at Christ in all of life. Friends, we are meant to be a proclaiming people. And one of the ways that we proclaim his death is by celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we'll do together. So friends, if you are here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, I wanna invite you.